Is it better to be loved or feared? Is it better to be loved or feared? The early 16th century author and diplomat Niccolo Machiavelli, more famously known for The Ends Justify the Means, also in his book The Prince, wrestled with this question, is it better to be loved or to be feared? Assuming that princes and kings would be incapable of earning both from their people, he argued that kings should seek to be feared rather than loved. This morning, we're going to wrestle in some ways with the same question. Last week, we talked about God's covenant faithfulness and love for his people. This week, we come into a bit of a harder text. We run into the second discourse in Malachi where God calls on his people to honor and fear him. And hopefully by the end of the message, we'll figure out whether or not Machiavelli was right and which is more important. Look at Malachi verse 6 of chapter 1 and read it with me together. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. You are a holy God, as we've sung about. Lord, as we continue to move through the book of Malachi, I pray that you would strike us with your greatness, that you would remind us of your awesome power and your goodness toward us. Father, as I open my mouth here, I pray that your spirit would move forward in our people, that we would be open to the leading of your spirit, that we would be ready for your word to change our hearts and minds. Father, make us worshipers that offer to you acceptable worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you know we began this new series from Malachi. We're entitling it, Worship 
restored. We covered the first of six disputes between the people and God. Last week, we covered forgetful worship. The people had forgotten that God was a loving, covenant-keeping God, and God had to remind them that He loved them and He chose them. We have five more disputes that we'll cover over the rest of the summer. Our second dispute is found in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. You'll note we didn't read the whole thing. We don't have time for that whole dispute this morning. We're just going to cover the first half. We'll cover the rest of it next week. The first half is what I'm calling worthless worship. Two warnings in this passage. Number one, there's a little bit of sting and rebuke in this text. You may have picked up on it as we read it. Number two, my outline is a bit more confusing than it was last week. There's some back and forth between God and the people here, but you'll notice at least three things that are going on in this text. First of all, God outlines the issue in the beginning of chapter or verse six. The issue, what is the problem that the people and God are struggling with? In the middle of the section, 6 through 8 and then 12 through 14, there's this debate that goes back and forth between God and the people. The people lob three accusations at God and God responds and defends himself in three ways. We'll look at those in the middle. And then lastly, as always, there's an implication for our worship that comes out of this discourse at the end of the section. God leads off here by diagnosing the issue. Look at your Bibles, verse Six, a son honors his father and a servant his master. This would have gone without saying for the people of the day. Sons honored their fathers, servants honored their lords and masters. It would have been a given. The people would have gone, yes, of course, that's true. A little less so in our current culture. We don't necessarily highlight the reality of this quite as much, but the people would have been following along with the logic says, yes, of course, a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. And then God drops the bomb. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Israel would have realized that God was their father. God had called them his children over and over and over again. But God says, where is the honor that I deserve as your father? Webster's Dictionary defines honor as to regard or treat someone with admiration and respect. The Hebrew term here that's used conveys the idea of something that's heavy or weighty or awesome. See, the very nature of the fact that the oracle that we started out Malachi with is a burden on Malachi is because the author is of significance. So his message is of significance. The implication here is that God is an awesome, glorious Father. An awesome and glorious Father. Which all of us would say, yeah, absolutely. The Israelites probably would have said, yeah, absolutely. But he goes on. He's beginning to back them into a corner here. He says, if I am a master, where is my fear? Again, Webster's Dictionary design, or defines fear, and I love that it has a special definition specifically for the fear of the Lord, if you look it up online, as to have a reverential awe of God. A reverential awe and wonder of God. That's exactly what we were singing about earlier here. This idea of a reverence and a fear of God in His awesome power. He says, if I am your master and Lord... Where is my reverence? Where is my respect? Where is my fear to the Israelites? 
You may be familiar with Proverbs 1.7 that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The ground level building of a life that follows after God is based upon an appropriate fear and respect for who he is. One of the commentaries I was reading this week put it this way. The practical result of the fear of God is covenant loyalty and restraint from sin. If we recognize God rightly as our Lord and Master, an appropriate humility and fear will cause us to obey and to follow Him. The implication here is that God is the perfect, sovereign Lord. I said last week that the Lord of hosts is going to come up multiple times in the book of Malachi. 24, as far as I could tell, over the whole book, it comes up seven times in this section alone. Last week we saw it in verse 4, the Lord of hosts, this idea of God as the commander of the angelic armies of heaven. And by virtue of that, the sovereign Lord over everything that takes place on the earth as well. It's mentioned seven more times. Note it in your Bible. Verse 6 says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8 says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, will he show favor to you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 10, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 11, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. He begins beating this drum about who he is for the Israelites, that he is the commander of heaven's armies, and the implication is that God is the supreme sovereign both of heaven and of earth. His greatness is unmatched. His awesomeness is unmatched. His glory is unmatched. But who's the audience here? Look back at verse 6. If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. It's fascinating here that the audience he is addressing is the priests. The very group of people that was supposed to be directing the people's attention to God offering sacrifices on behalf of the people to God, and he says, you have despised my name. How had they despised his name? Well, in essence, they had broken the third commandment. Anybody remember what the third commandment is from Exodus 20, verse 7? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Take a pin in that, in vain. We're going to come back to that. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The idea there is, yes, not using God's name as a curse word, absolutely. But the greater reality at play in that command is claiming the name of God with our words and living in, with a lack of accordance with that reality. It's saying, I want the privileges, I want the honor, I want the benefits of being a son of God but I don't want any of the responsibilities. I don't want to actually respond to him as a child responds to their father. Now, let me ask briefly. 
is this a category that you have for God? Do you have a category for God as a supremely awesome and glorious Father and a terrifying and reverential Master? Not terrifying in the way of a, you know, a microscope smiting ants on the ground, but in His awesome power and glory. Do you have a category like that for God? The storm that rolled through this last week, did you sit in your house as the hail pelted your roof and go, God is so great? See, I would submit to you that most of us have what I would call an incomplete view of God. Not a wrong view, an incomplete view. And it's likely based upon how our own fathers were when we were raised. Now, some of us didn't have the benefit of having a father in the home growing up. And so we've had to figure out what fatherhood means based solely upon the picture we've seen in Scripture of God as our father. Maybe we even struggle calling God our father because of that reality in our lives. But for most of us, what we had was an imperfect father. A father that struggled to balance the true truths that God is talking about here in Malachi 1. We had either a loving, comforting, nurturing father that struggled with honor and respect, or we had a respectful, honor-focused, even fearful father that struggled to show us compassion and love. As a result, most of our hearts find it hard to hold both of these truths at the same time of God. We see Him as either only loving and comforting and compassionate and everything we talked about last week, or as only honorable and fearful and awesome as we're talking about this week. But unlike fallen fathers, God is the perfect Father. Here in Malachi 1, God is pictured as both eternally, faithfully, compassionately loving and supremely, glorifyingly, or gloriously, terrifyingly awesome. Do you have a category for God as awesome, honorable Father and Lord? Because we have a tendency to err on one side or the other. To wrestle with this tension and to see God as either one or the other. But in spite of this reality, in spite of what God is claiming, the issue with His people, just like last week, Israel feels the need to respond. Israel retorts to the God of the universe. Consider this for a moment. Verse 6. But... You say, how have we despised your name? Now, one thing you're going to note as we continue to work through the book of Malachi is you're going to begin to notice this phrase, but you say. Every time the phrase, but you say, comes up, Israel is about to put their foot in their mouth. Okay? Israel is about to say something really dumb. But you say, look at verse 6, how have we despised your name? 
God, how have we despised your name? We haven't broken your third commandment. Look at all these offerings and sacrifices we're offering. The implication is, no, we haven't. We haven't despised your name, Lord. God responds. Again, we're seeing this back and forth. Defense number one, verse seven. By offering polluted food on my altar. God says, what you are bringing to me is polluted. It's no good. It's not valuable. We're going to see why here in just a moment. It's worthless. Again, they respond, verse 7. They just can't quit talking. But you say, how have we polluted you? It shifts from polluted offerings to polluted God. They rightly recognize that what they're offering to God has implications for what they think of God. But in their defense, they say, no, we haven't. We haven't polluted you, God. We haven't done anything wrong. We're guiltless before you, Lord. They reveal an apathy toward God's offerings that betrays an apathy toward who they think God is. Their apathy toward God's offerings reveal a contempt for God himself. It's a scary thing to think that this second or third generation after being returned back from the exile in Babylon had gotten so lackadaisical, had gotten so apathetic in their worship that their offerings were contemptible to God. And their response is so telling. Okay, like I said, keep your Bible open because we're going to skip around a little bit here, but look down at verse 13. He picks up where he left off. We're going to go back to 9 through 11 in just a minute, but he picks up where he left off. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. We just talked about that. And its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. We just talked about that. But you say, here we go again, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Can you sense the irony? Can you sense the sarcasm? All of us that were ever teenagers in our parents' home entirely understand what the Israelites are doing here. You can can practically see Israel's eye roll, right? What a weariness this is. I'm bored with you, God. That's far too inconvenient. That's far too costly. What a joke. See their contempt? For the God who saved them, the God who has just said he loves them and will keep his covenant to them. In essence, what they're saying back to God, their accusation is, it doesn't matter what we offer to you, God. It doesn't matter what we offer to you, God. You're either indifferent or you're unworthy of the best we have to offer. You're either indifferent or you're unworthy of the best we have to offer. In worship. This bothered me this week. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever found yourself questioning this reality about God? Does God really care how I worship Him? Does God really care how I worship Him? Does He really care what I offer to Him from my time, from my talents, from my treasures? from my heart? Does it really matter to God what I bring to give to Him? Is God really an honorable Father? 
Is he really an awesome master? Does God really deserve my best? I think far too often, at least in my own heart, the answer to those questions is, too much work, God. What a weariness this is. God's response here is quite telling. Like I said, he's beginning to back the Israelites into a corner here. Look at verse 8. He goes into more detail. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he show you favor? God says to the people, you're bringing what is blind, what is lame, what is sick, and what is stolen to me. He describes it in more detail down in verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and you bring this as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. You're bringing me the very last you have. You're bringing me the animals that are basically just going to die anyway. Or some of you are even going over to your neighbor's lot, and you're stealing their animals and offering them. See, what was so wrong with this? What was so wrong with this? Well, the reality is that God had commanded them to give them his best, or their best. Keep your finger in Malachi 1 and turn back to Deuteronomy in your Bibles. Here, Moses delivering the final words from the Lord before the people would enter the promised land talks about offering sacrifices to the Lord. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible, chapter 15, verses 19 through 21, we read this. Moses, looking at the people, anticipating them going into the promised land, says this. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock shall dedicate, or you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it and your household before the Lord your God year by year at the place the Lord will choose. Look at verse 21. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. What was so wrong with them bringing their worst and their last and the things that were about to die is that God had commanded them to bring their best. God had commanded them to bring their first. It's also a reality here that what the sacrificial system was intended to do was to paint a picture for the Israelites of God's grace and mercy that would one day be fully realized in Christ. Those sacrifices dying on their behalf were supposed to paint a picture of Christ's perfect life lived for them. His atoning death dying on their behalf and his resurrection three days later. And they were saying, that picture doesn't matter. God, you don't deserve our best. They were turning God's testament, this testament to God's glory and grace into a ritualistic worship task that profaned God's name. 
much like the church in 1 Corinthians did with communion, a celebration of God's mercy and grace, and God looks at them and says, you're doing more harm than good. They turned this testament of God's glory and grace into a ritualistic worship task that profaned his name. He looks at them and says, let me give you a human example in verse 8. Did you pick up on this? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? He says, not even your human rulers would accept these gifts. And you bring them to me as the honorable father and Lord of the universe and expect that I'll be pleased with what you're bringing? The people look at God and they say, you don't deserve our best. You don't care or you're unworthy of the best we have to offer. And God looks back at them and says, as your honorable father, as your awesome Lord, I absolutely deserve your very best. I deserve everything from you. I saved you. I love you, don't I? As your father, don't I deserve your honor? As your Lord, don't I deserve your fear? Have we ever done this? Have we ever offered to God whatever is left over in our lives? This really bothered me this week. Have we ever looked at our schedule and said, God, Whatever is disposable, whatever is left over of my schedule, I'm going to give to you in worship. Have we ever looked at our budget and the way we spend our money, and whatever's left over at the end of the month, that's what we give to God? We have a term for that, it's disposable income, right? And we give to God what is disposable, what is left over. Have you ever considered your own heart and said, do I just give to God from my own heart whatever is left over and whatever is convenient and whatever is easy? Or do I give him everything? Have you ever found yourself going through religious rituals without really taking time to consider your own heart? Just doing worship activity without really considering whether you're offering to God your best. Here's the point. What God says to his people is that God's glory demands the first and the best his people have to offer. What we offer to God indicates what we really think of God. What we bring to offer to God indicates what we really think of his worth. But just like God's love last week demands a response, God's glory has implications for us too. God's glory has implications for us as well. Look at verse 9 and 10. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. That's ironic, okay? Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. God says, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? And then this verse, which is absolutely 
killed me this week. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept this offering from your hand. God says here, you're bringing all of these blemished and sick and lame offerings and you're sacrificing to my altar and I won't accept them. It's a scary reality to consider. He says, I won't show you favor for these offerings. And even more than that, he says, I wish someone would shut the doors. I wish somebody would shut the doors of the temple to protect the altar and my temple from these profane acts of worship. That you might not kindle fire on my altar, here's the phrase again, in vain. I did not know this going into this text. In my study, this was a light bulb moment for me this week. The Hebrew term here is literally hin nam, in vain, or for nothing is what it conveys. I want you to not offer these sacrifices because they are worthless, they are in vain. There's another place in the Old Testament, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament that this term is used, but one specifically I want us to look at. Again, keep your finger in Malachi and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24 tells a fascinating story that many of us may not remember about King David. And it's the last story told about King David. And I think it's really significant. 2 Samuel chapter 24. In this situation, what has happened is David is reigning over Israel. And apparently he starts to get a bit of an ego as the nation's expanding and as they're protected because he decides to take a census of the people. But God had commanded the kings of Israel not to take a census of the people. He said, you're not the one protecting your people. Your greatness isn't shown in the number of people. I will take care of you. But David decides to take a census for the sake of his military and knowing what's going on. As a result, God brings a plague on Israel. He brings a plague on Israel and it starts killing people. David finds out that the way to stop this plague is to offer a sacrifice to God to atone for his sin. And then we get this passage. Follow with me. It connects, I promise. Look at verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna. I really don't know how to pronounce that. I Forgive me. I, to the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's words as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. And then this phrase, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me him nam, that are in vain, that are worthless, that are not costly. 
I will not offer a sacrifice that is not sacrificial. God says, I wish you would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in Nam. Genuine worship will always be costly. It will always cost us something. God goes on and says, I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept these offerings from your hand because you're offering them to me in vain. See, God desired acceptable worship from his people here. He had commanded worship in this way from his people, but he didn't need anything from them. There was a common understanding in the day around pagan worship that when they burnt sacrifices, it would go up and, and it would like give energy and give support to the gods. So the more people worshiping them, the, the stronger the god felt. Not so with the Old Testament God. He says, I don't need your worship. I don't need your sacrifices in vain. In fact, I prefer no worship to your empty religious activity. God would have preferred them to shut the doors to them going through the religious ritual without their hearts being in it. Now at this point, I feel the need to note a bit of a caveat here. Don't get too far ahead of me on this. What God is saying is that he is opposed to their empty worship, not formal ritual. Bear with me on this, because as 21st century Americans, we have a tendency to think that that means that all planned formal ritual is bad and what we should do instead is all spontaneity. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, is full of things, of rituals that we should go through. However, it's very consistent to say it's not the act of going through the ritual that matters, it's where your heart is when you do that matters. So we can go through a ritual like communion that the church has been celebrating for 2,000 years and it can make no difference because our heart is in the wrong place. It's not the action itself. It's the heart of the worshiper. And then he gets to this part and this is what Kurt Bloom was praying about. Verse 11 and 14, I love this part of the text. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And he goes on in 14 to say, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. There's some debate about the translation here because the verb in Hebrew doesn't specify whether it's present or future tense, but I like the ESV's translation here. My name will be great. Now we know that God is great in the whole world. We know that God reigns sovereign over everything in the world he's created, but his name is not yet recognized as such. He looks back to these Israelites speaking to Malachi and says, your worship is not acceptable, but one day my name will be recognized everywhere. My name will be great everywhere. Incense and pure offerings will be given everywhere. I am a great king. My name will be feared 
everywhere. One day, Christ will be honored and feared appropriately everywhere. That at the name of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is why worship proceeds missions. That is why worship motivates missions. We share the love of Christ everywhere because we are so awed by the God that we worship. Christ's final command to his people before leaving was, go therefore and make disciples, right? But why do we make disciples? And what are the disciples supposed to do? They're supposed to worship God. The gospel re-clarifies and refixes our orientation vertically to God. It restores true worshipers of God. We will be motivated to missions to the degree that we are awed and wondered by who God is. And if we find ourselves in a situation where we aren't excited about missions, we aren't excited about reaching our friends and neighbors with the gospel, we aren't excited about making disciples, it's probably because we aren't awed by the God we worship. Worship will motivate missions. I like the way John Piper puts it. He says it this way. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Bear with me. I'm not saying it's not important. Okay? Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, Missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. We will spend the rest of eternity worshiping the God who saved us. And our task today is to share the gospel so that more people would worship God appropriately. See, here's the key point. And I have to say, kids, if you're sitting out there, I, I apologize for last week. I was reproved by a young individual last week because your books have a key point section in them. And I did not give you a key point takeaway. I'm fixing that. From here on out, every week, I will try to have one or two slides that have that key up in the corner and are your key points. Here's your key point. Acceptable worship will always be on God's terms and costly to our convenience and idols. Acceptable worship to God will always be on God's terms because He is the one we worship, not us. And it will always cost us our convenience and our idols in this world. It will not be in vain. It will cost us something. Because the way we worship indicates our feelings about the one we worship. So this discourse that has gone back and forth between the people and God 
Israel looks up at God and says, God, you do not deserve our best. You don't deserve our everything. You're indifferent. You're not an honorable father. You're not a loving master. You don't deserve our best. God says, what have I been saying? I absolutely deserve your best. As an honorable father, as an awesome Lord, I deserve the very best that you have. And so our acceptable worship will always be on God's terms. And it will always cost us our inconvenience and our idols in this world. With that in mind, I want to give us just three key takeaways for this text. Three points of application that might be worth considering in your own life as we wrap up here. The first is, we need to be reminded that worship is first demanded by God's worth. Worship is demanded by God's worth. If we recognize just how awesome and holy and worthy the one that we worship here this morning and all the week is, we won't be able to stop ourselves from praising Him. If we recognize just how awesome God is, we won't be able to stop ourselves from worshiping Him for he, who He is. Worship is demanded by God's worth. Second, worship is directed by God's Word. God had told the people how He wanted them to worship Him. They had taken it upon themselves to do other things. He said, this is how I want to be worshipped. This is how I want you to bring offerings. This is what the sacrifices ought to be like. And the people said, ah, that's a little bit too much trouble. We're going to do it our own way. And God's Word still tells us how God desires to be worshipped, does it not? We talked last week about there's all sorts of goals in worship that you hear tossed around in the world, about worship needing to be emotional, and worship needing to be professional, and worship needing to be comfortable, and worship needing to be all sorts of things, but you'll notice what's the same about those things, they're all about us. Worship needs to be this because of how I feel. Worship needs to be this because of what I want to express. Worship needs to be this because of my thoughts. But God has revealed in His Word how He desires us to worship Him. Because worship is about Him, not us. And lastly, and this is the one that struck me the most, worship is demeaned by our apathy. Worship is demeaned by our apathy. We can just be, or we can be just like the Israelites in Malachi. So used to what we see going on in the temple, so used to what we witness week after week in our Christian lives, that we become indifferent, we become apathetic, and we don't really care about what we're doing. We become apathetic and we become more concerned with the things in our lives than about focusing our attention on God and who He is. We demean worship when we start to act that way, and we demean the one we worship when we start to act that way. So 
So what about Machiavelli's quote? Is it better to be loved or feared? He presumes, and rightly so, that no human can appropriately balance the two and be completely loving and completely respected and worshipped. But we serve an amazing God who can say in the first part of the chapter, I have loved you, I am absolutely loving, I am absolutely faithful, I am absolutely gentle, I am absolutely tender, but I am also absolutely awesome. I am absolutely glorious, I am absolutely sovereign, and I am absolutely worthy of your best in worship. Johann Gerhardt, writing in the late 1500s, early 1600s, put it this way, and with this I'll leave us. The fear of God is to be united with the love of God. For love without fear makes men remiss, and fear without love makes them servile and desperate. We worship and praise a God that is fully, completely, and perfectly both awesome and loving. And I know that doesn't jive with Father's Day. I know that's next week. We'll talk about that when we get to there. But God is absolutely both of these things, and a result absolutely deserves our best in worship. Will we give it to him? Let's pray. Father, this is hard to hear. It's hard to fathom how a people that you saved out of Egypt by your miraculous deeds and the parting of the Red Sea and the plagues of Egypt and the fire and the smoke and how you brought them into a land by defeating all of their enemies through your supernatural means and how you then disciplined them and sent them to Babylon and then saved them by bringing them back, how after all of that, they could become indifferent and apathetic to your power and wonder. And yet, Lord, we recognize that that's too true of us too. In spite of the fact that none of us deserved your love, none of us were worthy of worshiping you, you have saved us through your Son and have called us to worship you and to know you. But we repent of the fact that we often can become complacent, we can become apathetic, we can become indifferent, and we can think that you do not deserve our best in worship. Lord, change that in our hearts. We recognize that we don't change our thoughts about who you are just by our own effort. We may feel convicted by these words, but we are powerless to change our own hearts. Lord, the only thing that will restore an appropriate worship of you is a vision of who you are. Lord, give that to us. Father, help us to seek in your word and in prayer an understanding of your greatness and your awesome worth. Give us that vision of who you are. Humble us in comparison. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.